The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody. Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. I'm here with my regular... (laughs) Co-star, <clears throat> and, we, and Dr. Fred Gertz, by the way, we must be deemed an essential radio right. show. <laughs> That's only, my only takeaway is we must be essential. Or we're expendable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nobody cares about us, Fred. They, they told us we could take our masks off. Uh, I'm also a certified financial planner, professional retirement income certified professional, David Rudy. David called in. David, do you have us? Do we have you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, good, can you hear me? good. Yes, you can call in with your questions two one seven three five six nine three nine seven or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at three five one five three five seven. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, two weeks have passed, Doctor Fred. We're um, going to spend another thirty days in lockdown. Right. Um, were you surprised by that? Uh, no, I think people are, uh, uh, governor and uh, at least nor- northern uh, politicians are, are pretty risk averse and don't want to take a chance of uh, doing anything too soon. So, again, uh, uh, they're walking a, a fine line, but they're kind of wor- walking on the, on the safe side of it by a long ways. And I think people are, are coming more and more to the conclusion that uh, at some point we have to uh, start opening things up and uh, – Maybe another 30 days is not going to make a big difference. But again, uh, I think there has to be some movement in that direction. Yeah, I think so, too. I think as the numbers start to roll in and we look back on this thing, well, my personal view is um, we there's a chance we'll look back and realize we didn't. We probably shouldn't have locked down things the way we did. But uh, that's certainly nobody knows. Uh, the problem, uh, I, I don't know. You can always say that the reason why we – uh, came away without a, a bigger thing is because we have the lockdown. So it's a, a kind of thing you can't go back and, and really see because right. you can't have the counterfactual about what would happen if we hadn't done anything. The one thing, though, that, that seems kind of uh, strange, if you look at the numbers by uh, by countries, the developed countries are usually a higher percentage than the underdeveloped. And you think, well, maybe it's, something's going on there. But I think what's going on is that the, the the more developed countries actually test and know what's going on, sure. the, the other countries don't. And again, there, there's some countries that didn't do very much, like Sweden. Other people did a lot. Other countries did a lot. And it doesn't seem like it made a whole lot of difference in terms right. of the, uh, the, more the path, I read, the path yeah. of the disease. Yeah, that's uh, the more I read, that, that's the kind of conclusion I'm coming to. Well, we, we will see. May we live in interesting times. Meanwhile, <clears throat> President Donald Trump signed $484 billion, another one. This is another package. Four hundred four hundred eighty-four billion. These these are substantial sums of money. As another relief package, three hundred and seventy billion of that is targeted to small businesses. And I was talking to Dr. Gertz beforehand. I I didn't quite get the statistics. I was I was a little taken aback that I read some that in pretty credible article. I don't have it in front of me now. That some ninety plus, maybe ninety-nine percent of businesses would be deemed small businesses in the United States, and eighty percent of those are sole proprietorships. And uh, but nonetheless, small businesses employ about sixty-five percent of the people, so it's a pretty important group. So another three hundred and seventy billion for them. I think three hundred and ten billion dollars of that is targeted again, just to kind of refresh that or replenish that 
Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, they've also geared at least $60 billion to small lenders. I think that's been one of the one of the complaints about it is these publicly traded companies. Yeah. And, and, and I did see that uh, Treasury Secretary uh, Mnuchin said that anybody that borrowed $2 million or more is going to get a certain audit yeah. of how they needed the funds, whether right. they could certify, whether they actually did need it. And that's probably got a few people a little sleepless time. Well, I, I doubt it there. <laughs> Losing a lot of sleep, yeah, because... Uh, Again, the government's not particularly nimble about uh, doing these things. We right. we can't get our, our tax laws uh, in good shape over uh, decades, and so it's very hard to come up with a new program in a couple of weeks and have it administered properly and, and efficiently and also uh, uh, have it uh, checked on after the fact. And so I, I suspect that, that there's going to be a lot of things that uh, uh, we want to have happen that really won't happen. The one good thing, though, is it, they're not talking about shovel-ready. Uh, shovel-ready was the term in the uh, 2007 to 2009 recession, and it turned out that uh, we weren't nearly as uh, ready as we thought. Right. We it, Clearly, we weren't. And and I'm going to take a call in a second, but, you know, two weeks ago, I, I, w I was wondering out loud about uh, states, you know, like Illinois and others, and really bad financial shape going into this what this might do to it. And I threw out the idea that someone had thrown out that the federal government could theoretically allow states to go bankrupt. And then in the last couple of weeks, uh, that dis discussion came up and Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, uh, pretty much threw a lot of cold water on right. that. But meanwhile, we're going to go to Rich. Rich, this is Paul. Uh, yeah, what's going on in your world today, Rich? No, you know, not a whole lot, actually, so that, that's fine. Fortunately, I am uh, retired and well-situated, so it financially has minimal impact on me. Oh, that's good to hear. That is good it to is hear. It is good. I mean, I'm uh, taking the advice of a lot of people over the years, so I'm, I'm okay. Good. But uh, I, I am wondering, this is, I don't think this was affected as much by the virus as what's going on in the Middle East and Russia, but I want to take your kind of get your understanding of what's happening with oil and what do you think is going to be going forward with oil? Because uh, as as weird as everything else has been, that's been one of the weirdest things I've seen financially in the last month. That's a good question. Go ahead, Fred. Well, what's your first take on that? Oil was already uh, in a, a a serious down cycle. And uh, some of the lowest in the last several years, or, or maybe last decade or so, and then on top of that came the uh, the shutdown with the virus. So there's a huge uh, reduction in demand right now because people aren't driving, uh, uh, factories aren't running as much, and so on. And the uh, that that created a, a kind of anomaly of the negative price. It really wasn't a negative price where where you could drive up to a. a, a refinery and say, "Give me some oil," and they would pay you. Right. Uh, it was a uh, futures kind of situation where there wasn't enough storage to handle the uh, expectations in the future. So again, it, it's not really a negative price, but it's a very low price. I think it's going to continue, uh, obviously, through the shutdown, and, and it's going to depend on the recovery. So I think it's going to go back, but uh, depending on the strength of the recovery, it may be a long time before it gets back to you know, 40 or $50 a, a barrel. And it, and it was more meaningful, not that it's not a meaningful part of our economy, but when you look at the Standard & Poor's 500 index, it's only maybe 2 to 3% of the index is represented by energy. It used to be multiples of that. So it's having a little less impact right. on the broad U.S. stock market, but it's certainly having an impact 
that sector is a pretty important sector, is it not? Right. Also, it's a, a, a changing sector. It used to be we were importers, so a low price would have been, to some extent, an advantage to us. But now we're an exporter, and, there, and lots of uh, investment has been taking place in terms of uh, exploiting fracking opportunities. And that's it's not uh, particularly a good investment environment to be looking for oil when the price is uh, you know, very, very low. It's just my luck. I just looked across the street, and, and you know it's like a dollar seventy a gallon, and I don't have anywhere to go. Right. <laughs> Anything else, Rich? Well, I had a follow-up question with that. Yes, sir. So, if you had cash sitting in an account somewhere, would that be worth investing in for? I mean, not a short term, not a contract, but I'm talking about with it being as deflated. It's kind of like when stocks are down; it's a time to buy, but. Uh, is the same true of oil where you could buy either in the companies or in the futures for planning on a year out? Would that be? Well, there would be a big difference in buying just the oil itself, but you could you can buy the equivalent of oil through exchange-traded funds. That's a commodity, and commodities don't produce anything. They're produced, so they don't have earnings income streams like companies do. So that would be pure speculation, and I would have no interest in that. That's not an opinion on it. Couldn't be fifty percent higher in six well, months. Are the are the oil companies down right now as well? Oh yeah, oh yeah. They've been they're severe. They've gone down a lot. You're you know, it's even a question that some of the major ones, whether they can you know keep their dividends where they are, if they're going to have to cut them, how much they could cut them. So, uh, so if I was going to be a contrarian, Fred. I would want to probably buy a basket of the major oil producing companies and refining publicly traded refining companies. It so you're getting that basically it's a bet on oil, but at least with companies that produce earnings and dividends and things. Right, like right. That. But you're basically uh, what we talk about here is having a plan. That's not part of your plan. But if you were an no, no. active investor who wanted to take some chances, it's probably not not a bad risk. But but again, uh, you know probably. Uh, Close to 50-50, you'll lose money, and, yeah. and, and the other, other side of the coin, you might gain some. Again, I think it's fair to say that would be more speculation as opposed to investing, but some sure. people have a portion of their portfolio they like to tinker with. And I, I wouldn't have a lot of appeal to me, but uh, even from a speculative standpoint, uh, it's, I think there are better things. Yeah, the, the other thing, which we always say, uh, you can never go wrong, that I don't think that uh, Paul or I – Know very much about the oil no. market, and I, I suspect you're not really no. have an inside position there. So, uh, it, without that information, it's probably like a fifty-fifty bet. Yeah, I, I think uh, again, it's a, the word "bet" is the, is the case. If you feel, you know, some people like to go to the casino boats, but I suppose you can't even do that now. Uh, you know, betting never appealed to me. You know, we, we go to Minnesota every summer, and there's a casino on an Indian reservation, and. A lot of the kids, everybody likes to do it. I, I get no enjoyment out of betting. I don't know what it is, yeah. but it's just this is, a, this is at least a, a fair game, I think. I mean, you're not, you're not getting drawn into uh, some secret uh, stash of gold or something of right. that sort. And I think the hedge is to buy companies that yeah. per, are in the oil business as opposed to just speculating on the price of oil itself. You're doing a little bit of that by buying those oil companies, but not a pure commodity play. Yeah. Good question, yeah, Rich. Well, I think you so you're more than welcome, and I'm... Sure, a lot of people had the same question Rich did. Thanks, Rich. Um, I was talking before we took uh, Rich's call, which is a good call. Um, you know, uh, what, what do you think the chances of a bailout for states are, Fred? I, again, we don't, neither one of us know, but you. you well, I think there'll be uh, a bailout. There almost always is with a, a recession, but it's not the kind of bailout that uh, 
Senator Hoffman, who uh, said, why, why not uh, throw in $40 billion for our pension funds? And he got kind of uh, beaten up by everyone in sight when he said that. So, again, it's not going to be a big bailout like we're going to take care of your uh, malfeasance for the last 30 years and, and give you a big check. But it may be something to tide us over for a year or two. But I don't think anything special is going to come to Illinois because we're in such a bad position. It'll probably be like everyone else. So with this 2 to $3 trillion, I don't know that all of it is money that was actually getting spent as opposed to some of it just being lent out, et cetera. But we're, clearly, we're going to have some big deficit spending. Um, the, the guys and I, uh, you know, my three sons and my son-in-law, we did a, a Zoom video, basically, conference that our clients could plug into. We did that on Friday. I think that was Friday morning. And that one of the more common questions that, you know, what they would type and send to us through messaging was, what about inflation? Is this, does it have to be inflationary? Well, again, uh, you know, if you asked the question 15 years ago, the answer would be yes. Yeah. But we've gone through a period now of, uh, of a couple of decades with almost no inflation and also huge deficits. We had huge deficits during the, uh, uh, the 2007 to 2009 and on after that as part of the uh, Great Recession. And now we have even bigger ones today. So... Uh, and we, we're close to zero interest, uh, uh, so inflation's not really a factor right now. But eventually, you, you can't go wrong by saying sometime, someplace, we're going to have a resurgence of in, inflation. But again, I don't think it's going to be an immediate kind of thing. This, this also is a really, uh, a really different kind of, uh, of downturn, a different kind of response. It's called a stimulus where you send all this money. But the fact is, there's not much to stimulate right now because there's nothing to buy, nothing to do. So it's basically more improving individuals' balance sheets and maybe putting them in a better, and, and businesses' balance sheets, to put them into a better position to start spending once the recovery, once the uh, the lockdown ends. So right now, it's more of a holding pattern, uh, you know, keeping people solvent as opposed to actually stimulating the economy because there's nothing to stimulate right now. And it's the truth of the matter is if a few years from now we look back and we do have a little higher than average inflation, that would probably be a good sign in a weird way because that means we didn't go into a depression. Right. And also, for, it's again, uh, if, if someone in the past were listening for the, to this, it would be a strange thing to say, but we've been fighting to try to increase inflation up right. to uh, 2% or so, and we haven't been successful. So, again... We're in a range right now where some uh, modest increases in the price level. It's not going to be any problem at all. We just want to avoid the situation we had in the in the 60s and 70s and 80s and and obviously not go into a, a kind of hyper-inflationary uh, situation. And some of the other questions I got on Friday from our clients, and we're, again, we're going to do these every couple of weeks, and we may even open it up to radio listeners. We'll, we'll get to that at some point. Uh, but the other nagging question was, who's going to pay for this? I mean, are our grandchildren just destined to be a problem? And what I talked about, and then I'll get your response, is, well, kind of like a lot of things, you can go back to World War II and learn a lot, perhaps. Um, in 1943, we had a deficit of about 30% of GDP, and then the next couple of years is around 22, 21. And then if we look at the total debt of the U.S. relative to GDP, I think it at its high point was like 120% of GDP. And even back then from everything I read and all the reading I've done, it looked like everybody was pretty bearish and thought, what have we done to our grandchildren? We'll never get out from under this debt. And then you go, you look by 1980 and basically we had gone from that 120% of GDP in debt to around 
maybe 20, 15 or 20%, maybe it's 30, I don't remember offhand, but it's substantially lower, and it's kind of like, well, how did that happen? And it's- uh, you know, Economic growth is yeah. the magic answer, that we didn't we didn't pay down the debt. We, right. The uh, denominator got larger and larger and larger, so the percentage uh, went down. And that can happen, as long as nominal GDP, right. that is GDP before inflation, which is the gross domestic product, is it? it used yeah. to be GNP. Sometimes I get confused, because I think of GNP. Uh, it's kind of like as long as that is growing uh, to a larger extent in that given year than the amount of additional right. debt, you're in essence, you're shrinking the denominator. And, and countries aren't like, and I think, Fred, a lot of people, when we think of debt ourselves, we think, well, when I take a mortgage out in 30 years or 15 years, that, that's coming due. I mean, right. there's, I can't not pay it off. It's, the bill comes due. But Countries like the United States are not like that. They can just renew the debt and renew the debt. And the debt never really goes away. Right. The question is, is how big of a problem does it become? Well, also, the, the, the problem is very mild now because uh, we're paying almost no interest on it. If the interest rate went up to 5 7 10%, that would right. be uh, a different kind of thing. The other thing, too, which uh, is kind of a, a subtle point, that when you have inflation, the inflation automatically eats away at the debt, but we're not uh, with a... One or two percent inflation that the debt's not being diminished in real terms right now. But the, the real problem, though, is just the what's happening to the economy. Like the, the the argument about World War II is who paid for World War II, and it was obviously the people who sacrificed and died and so on. But in addition to that, the economy came out of World War II with a much lower capital stock than it otherwise would have had. We spent huge amounts of money for uh, you know, military supplies, airplanes, tanks, things of that sort those things became not particularly valuable after the war. So instead of building factories and so on, we, we did those things, and obviously for, for a very good reason. But the, the cost was borne more in terms of a lower rate of return after the war. But that's another issue. That there's, in France, they call it the magic, I'm not sure what the French name is, but like the magic 30 years, the, the period from 1945 to 1975 was a period of unmatched growth, and it was true in Western Europe, the United States, and so on. So in addition to uh, all the other things, we had a situation where the economy was growing much more rapidly than uh, usual, and now we're back, we've come back to earth. So the even despite what Trump is saying, we're probably going to be likely to grow at 2% for uh, the next decade or two. And when you also look back to that prior period where we had a similar amount level of debt relative to the size of the country, um, you know, in 1926, I think, or 1929, the top marginal tax rate, I think, was 24%, and by 1946, it was 94%, right. and it didn't get reduced to below 80 until for another 20 years. Is that a suggestion that that's also one of the ways we'll end up working at this problem if we do? That Would it be reasonable to expect higher, at least federal Mar top marginal tax brackets? I think mar uh, marginal, uh, marginally high marginal rates. But again, uh, I don't think anyone, I mean, not, I shouldn't say anyone, Bernie Sanders is still around, but uh, uh, no, no one's suggesting going back to a 60 or 70 percent uh, marginal tax rate. So I think we might creep up above the 40 level. And there, there are a lot of hidden taxes now where some of your investment income is taxed under the, uh, to fund Medicare or things of that sort. So uh, we're probably going to be in the 40% high marginal, marginal range. But again, I think that's not, uh, not going to be devastating for the economy. All right. And David, I have one for you because one of the questions we're getting uh, a lot of times is, 
well, is now a t- good time to invest? It seems a little bit cliche. Um, you know, how are you answering that? Um, we know we have new people calling us all the time. Uh, it's a pretty common question. Uh, so how do you, it's, it's also full, with, full of a lot of traps. How are you dealing with that? Yeah, I always feel a little bit like I, I need to be really careful when I answer this question because intuitively I want to say like, yes, it's pretty much always a good, a good time to invest if you have cash just sitting on the sidelines because the stock market pretty much always has positive expected returns. Um, and, you know, it's probably got even higher expected returns after a significant market decline. But I think what people are asking a lot of times when they ask that question is, I don't want to invest this money and see it go down. Basically, are we in the clear? And, and am I safe to get back in? And is it just going to go up from here? And so what I usually tell people is like, look, it, it, if history is any guide, it, it's probably a, a reasonably good time to invest, but it, it kind of always is. But that being said, it doesn't mean that you couldn't invest your money and we couldn't go down immediately after you, after you invest your money and see a, you know, a market decline to the lows or even lower. Kind of no matter what, has gone on in the past when you're investing a lump sum of money there's always that possibility that the market goes down and so you know i always tell people look the trap that you fall in is when you try to predict the right time you can get stuck on the sidelines for a really long time and you're never going to know the right time so say you you wait to invest it's like well what are we waiting for and when are we going to know to get in in the future so even if you wait on the sidelines the market falls you know Say, say it falls back to our lows. Are you at that time going to say, oh, well, now I know for a fact it's the bottom and we're going to get back in? No, it's probably going to be just like the last bottom where the picture didn't look so bright. And there's a chance that it could fall further even from where you get in at that point. And I think the risk you run is, hey, you get stuck on the sidelines and then things work out the other way. You, you miss out on permanent returns. The market never falls back to where it was. And missing out on those permanent gains can be more costly than, you know, investing your money and experiencing a temporary decline. So, uh, yeah, and this is especially uh, yeah. uh, volatile, volatile time now. I, I was asking Paul a, a question. I don't know a lot about the stock market terms, but it appears we've had a, a bear and a bull market within two months, uh, down over 30 percent and back up over 25 percent. So I don't know whether that counts or not. These, but, the, but the point is that. The person asking you should be aware that, that uh, this is not a, a time of tranquility in the markets. Yeah. And Dave, when I get yeah, back, oh, I, go ahead. Good, Dave. I was going to say, I usually, in, in a lot of my communication lately, I've been saying, you know, at the very least, I think you need to be mentally prepared for high fluctuation or high volatility for a while because there's just so much uncertainty right now. Um, but, you know, the, t- the takeaway, the short answer is, Look, don't try to time the market. You're never going to know the exact right time to invest. The best thing to do is invest it all now. But if that is just too much for you to stomach and you're too worried about, you know, investing it and seeing a a decline soon after, you know, uh, a reasonable alternative is to invest a chunk now and then invest, you know, the rest in maybe equal monthly increments over a certain block of time so that you don't get, you kind of hedge your bets a bit. So you kind of ease the regret in both directions. Okay. And then when I come back after this next call, I'm about to pick up, just hold on a second caller, please. Uh, the next question, and I know you're getting this a lot. All, all you guys are getting this. And we talked about it on our 
basically our Zoom forum the other day. Um, what about reducing or eliminating your withdrawal from your portfolio? But next, I am going to go to Stan. Stan, how are you? Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, first a comment and then a question for uh, Dr. Kurt. Uh, it was uh, Mitch McConnell who first floated the idea of allowing states to go bankrupt. He only changed his tune on that after Republican senators tried to explain to him how crazy that was. Um, so that, that's kind of the timeline of the letting states go bankrupt stuff. Uh, Dr. Burns, if we go back into the short back machine and we look at uh, 2001, 9-11-01, we had uh, a period of five days where Bush 43 shut down two segments of the economy, Wall Street and the airline industry. And following that, we had a very minor recession. And now we have a uh, situation where over the past four weeks, we've had 26, four or five weeks, we've had 26 million people file first-time claims for unemployment. And we have a, a, a situation where basically the entire country has been shut down for most of a month. Can you compare those two occurrences by their probabilities of having economic impact and how much that impact would be? Well, the uh, we know the results for the, the uh, 9-11. Uh, we were in a situation where the economy was slowing, and, it, and it's quite likely we would never gone into a recession had not had not been for the uh, attacks, but the recession was extremely mild. There was hardly any downturn in, in employment, and it was one of the, the mildest recessions on record. That doesn't mean there wasn't a big uh, equity decline. We had the 50%. sell-off of the yeah. uh, of the uh, high tech sector, but in terms of the economy, it was just a blip. This obviously is going to be a lot bigger because, as you described it, it's a, a, almost a system-wide shutdown. But it's also uh, a situation where you don't really know what's going to happen. It could be a really fast bounce back uh, once things start opening up again. People will have funds uh, available. They'll start working again and so on. So we could have a relatively uh, quick recovery. But, again, there could be a resurgence of the uh, of the virus. All kinds of things could happen. So right now I think we're kind of in limbo. But I would suspect that we'll have a, a – a fairly uh, a good recovery once things start because there was nothing particularly wrong with the economy before we went into this. The other thing that Paul and I were talking about earlier, uh, this is a time of, of kind of culling uh, things, uh, calling in your bad bets. So a lot of firms uh, may be going out of business now <clears throat> and may be associated more or less uh, directly with the uh, the virus, but probably they were not uh, long for the, this world anyway. So it's a time when a lot of things change. Does that answer your question, Stan? Uh, oh, I thought we lost Stan. I thought I'd get the delay. Sorry, Stan. Uh, and we're going to move on anyway, but that's a good question. Um, I think it's on a lot of people's minds. And we don't, I mean, the answer is we don't know whether it's going to be a V-shaped or a U-shaped or whatever, but I think there is some hope it will be a, a fairly strong recovery. The one thing uh, uh, it may have changed since we were on the air, but the, 
the uh, equity market seems to be more uh, uh, sanguine about this than anyone else because there's been a, a much bigger recovery in, in the stock market than I would have expected. Well, I think uh, ultimately, and you hit it, I think uh, there was nothing wrong with the economy, you know, in a general sense. It was just, you'd have to, most anybody would say it was a reasonably, maybe a very strong, a reasonably strong economy, certainly relatively healthy. And that certainly gives you hopes of that. And, you know, it's kind of like I have 40 acres of land behind me. I don't own it. A farmer does. And, you know, I've tried to explain this to clients. It's be like, okay, you buy that 40 acres and you're going to farm it and you have a bad season the first year. I mean, is it really worth 30 percent or 40 or 50 percent less? It's not because you're looking out over a generation or multi-generations, what, how productive this land might be and what income and it might produce for our family. Companies are the same thing. When you're, when you're buying into a portfolio of great companies of America and the world, it's really not, yeah, it'd be delightful if next year's earnings are great. Sure. But you really should be thinking of that in terms like the farmer does. What is this going to produce in terms of rising income streams, potentially rising uh, share price because if incomes are rising and dividends are rising, chances are you're also getting some appreciation on that land and or your companies. Uh, so I think that's kind of yeah. And a lot of the problems now are more uh, not not true uh, bankruptcy, but more uh, cash flow. Uh, so if you're if you're Cash stops and you don't have a large uh, right. reserve. You're you're in trouble, even if you do have a a basically sound business. Now, this also goes back to one thing David was talking about earlier. This certainly illustrates the idea of having a contingency fund, for, uh, a rainy day fund for both people and for other kinds of organizations. You know, it's interesting. We've always talked about it to show you how you know even our thinking can change. Is you know the more stable your job is, the less maybe the you know the, the lower. Uh, rainy day fund would be appropriate for someone whose job is very quite unstable. Maybe they should have a year of expenses in a stored in a savings account. But even a, a jobs that you might have thought were secure under normal circumstances suddenly can show you that they can perhaps go through some extended furlough periods as well. So clearly you shouldn't be investing until you have an emergency fund for things like this. And And it was interesting before you know, I've, I've talked about the, it's the risk you never see uh, that nobody's talking about that turns out to be the big one and it turns out to amplify the problems. Um, or another way to put it is risk is what's left over after you think you've thought of everything. Um, it's just, you know, who would have thought uh, a, a couple of months ago that we you just it was, you wouldn't have sat around as, if you could just get as drunk as you wanted, you wouldn't have come <laughs> up with this one. Uh, David, going back to that uh, question that we get asked frequently, we got asked by two or three of the participants in our forum on Zoom uh, last week, is what should we do about if we're withdrawing money from our portfolio and now suddenly our portfolio is down 10, 15, or 20%, does that mean I should stop or change my withdrawal amount? How are you handling that? Yeah, so I think their intuition really is is leading them in the right direction, but overshooting a little bit. So I think people see their portfolio maybe drop, you know, 10 or 15% if they're in like a balanced type portfolio between stocks and bonds. And they think, oh, my spending needs to be cut 10 or 15%, kind of like a one-to-one ratio. I do think, you know, in times where the market is down substantially, and it depends where you start with your withdrawal rate, but if you want to start a little bit on the higher side, 
one of the things you can do is, is do that, but have some flexibility to reduce your spending um, downwards or reduce your portfolio withdrawals if a, mar uh, you know, a big market decline does come along. And that's what we do um, because it does allow clients to start out with a little bit higher withdrawal rate. But because you know market declines like this, market declines of this magnitude are going to happen, and they're going to happen probably multiple times over a client's retirement, it's not like they're a surprise. So you build your plan to withstand them, and you still have a pretty darn conservative starting withdrawal. And because you, you should be starting out conservatively like that, one, you may not need a uh, redu reduction to your withdrawal yet. So the vast majority of our clients didn't actually need a change to their withdrawal rate, but got very close towards the bottom. Um, but if you do, it's not like a one-to-one -one ratio. It's, it's going to be a relatively modest withdrawal reduction. So again, I, I think it's a good idea in concept. It's just that people tend to take it too far and think that they need to just totally stop withdrawals or cut their spending more than they really do. And again, all of that is kind of assuming they're following a reasonable process from the get-go. Yeah, so the other okay. flip side of that is, look, if you started out super conservative and you were withdrawing you know, only a, a couple percent from your portfolio or just spending the dividends, look, you probably don't need to make an adjustment. So it, it, a lot of it depends where you start. But I, I think that kind of answers the question. Yeah. And part of it is really a pure... Uh, tax play. If you have some unused, uh, a, a low bracket uh, tax rate and it's not fully used up, it might be a good time to do that. And you don't have to spend it if you take it out. And you may actually have the option of moving over into a Roth. So if there's some temporary decline that, push, that allows you to have some flexibility where you have a, a, a tax rate that's lower, it's going to be in the future. This is a, maybe a good time to take some action. Because if you're retired or close to retirement, the deferral of is pretty unimportant at that point. So getting the tax benefit is, is really a good idea. And that's one of the things I think I might have mentioned on our last show, um, but for people that normally would have a required minimum distribution this year, that's waived. You don't have to take it. Now a good number of people take it because they need it and they need it for their spending stream. But there's a, we have a good number, a good percentage of clients that don't really spend the required minimum distributions. And for those people, we'll be suggesting uh, doing Roth conversions because uh, they would have been taxed on it anyway. And for some people that we were going to do Roth conversions regardless, maybe we're going to still forego that required minimum distribution and have a larger Roth conversion into uh, conversion from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. So these are some of the things, you know, there are sometimes, there are usually silver linings in, in any strategy. You just have to look for them. Well, my, my silver lining is if you have a, a qualified account like a 401k or 403b, uh, probably a third of what you're losing is the government's money anyway. That's true. I mean, look, you look in your traditional IRA or 401k, the government is your partner for a certain percent of that, anywhere from 10 to 37 percent. And uh, it's their money. They're going to get it. Um, so... Particularly what I'm trying to do with clients is I'm anticipating, and I think everybody, whether it happens or not, mentally, um, as Dr. Gert said, we've had a big rebound from the market, broad U.S. market, and basically international markets are down somewhere around 36% on March 23rd. We've had a significant rally. We've probably made up 50% of that decline at this point, which isn't unusual. It wouldn't be unusual because there's never been a V recovery out of a 30% stock decline. Uh, 
It's not to say there couldn't be, to say historically it's never happened. So I think it's healthier, at least from an expe- expectation standpoint as investors, because people aren't really rattled right now. They were rattled on March 23rd. Uh, most people were rattled that had investment, any investments in stocks. Uh, suddenly, you know, it's almost as if, well, it's not a big deal. Well, there's a decent chance that we'll go back and visit those lows and maybe the market's down 30 to 40% at some point. It's not a prediction. I'm not talking about doing anything to your portfolio related to that thinking. It's just change your thinking. Uh, just be prepared psychologically. Um, for the market to maybe go down and see if those that was a reasonable bottom that maybe people can begin to quit worrying below that point. And if that's the case, then I'm going to try to time this these Roth conversions um, at lower stock market values. And uh, hopefully we'll get the chance to do that. Regardless, we'll be doing some Roth conversions for a number of our clients. Um, another benefit, Dave, a lot of people that are tight on money cause not, you know, maybe for a while you're not going to get, it's tough to get, you can get unemployment and, you know, compensation and benefits, but sometimes it's a matter of when you're going to get them. And so one of the things that they've allowed under the new cares package is normally you could borrow up to $50,000 of your 401k balance. And now they've increased that to a hundred thousand dollars. Have you had anybody Two questions. Have you had anybody that wanted to do that? And if not, or if they did, either way, what's what's your thinking on that, whether that's sensible or not? Yeah, so I haven't had any clients that have needed to do that yet. Um, you know, most of our clients are retired, so we don't even have that many clients that have assets in 401ks right now. Um, I think it's, it's fine as like a, a relative sort of last resort. It's like, Sometimes there are realities to life and you need that money to to make it through this period. If that's the case, then that's a decent way to go about doing it if you don't have any other better options. What do you think? Yeah, I'm kind of like, I don't like the idea of ever using it. That's, you know, it, it's, I would make that the lack, you know, the last resort. Um, and I would minimize any borrowing I do from it. Um, So, but people got to do what they have to do. And, uh, I understand it, but I, I would treat it as that's my last ditch effort. I have nowhere else to get money. You got any thoughts on that, Fred? I think that's right. But I, I, I'm not sure about the, uh, rules here. Aren't there rules that you have to have some, uh, related decline, uh, that's connected to the, uh, virus to, to do the extra kind of withdrawals. I don't know how they, how they test that. With there it. are, there's a, there's a number you, you had been diagnosed with COVID-19 <laughs> or a spouse or dependent adverse financial consequences. I'm reading unable to work because lack of child care as a result of the disease own a business that closed. It's pretty liberal. I suppose right? you could argue that the client, the stock market, What's the uh, (laughs) precipitating factor? I I don't think anybody's going to police it is my guess. I I think that's, that's, I'm not saying they won't. Um, That's my opinion. Don't act on my opinion. Talk to your CPA. Talk to your your doctor. Yeah. Um, Here's a, here's a thought that I'm having, you know, when I see the market, Fred, you brought up this pretty amazing rebound that nobody saw coming. I don't think I didn't see anybody talking about it. It was the opposite, which just shows you another example of, why it's so difficult to time the markets. Um, you know, uh, if you didn't get out, so if you're one of these investors and it's around March 23rd, the broad U.S. stock market's down 36%, and you're just 
up at night, you're worried, you're worried for your children, you're worried you're not going to have inheritance for your children. What about if your kids lose their job, you, they may have to come to the bank of debt. Whatever the reason is, if you were really panicked towards the third week of March, when the broad U.S. market was down 36%, and you didn't sell, and I tried to counsel anybody on not selling at that particular point, but there would there could be justification for doing it then if you just simply it's ruining your life and you just you had the wrong portfolio to begin with. But here's your chance at such a significant rebound without doing any material damage to your portfolio. So, you know, you have an option right now to rebalance to 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 think about your asset allocation. What what is actually permanently uh, good enough for you where you don't where you won't stress out near as much. Okay, so if you were two thirds in the stock market or seventy five percent, and now you realize I probably don't want to have more than half my money in the stock market. I just can't handle what comes along with it. This is kind of your get out of jail pretty close to free card um, because you'll want to exercise that option if we go down thirty five or forty percent uh, from the top again. And the option, of course, at that point is taken off the table. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, I know everybody says you should never sell when stock prices are down. But if you've suddenly found yourself in a strategy that was way above your, you know, you were way over your skis on and you realize a lower asset allocation permanently for the rest of your life makes more sense. It's no sin in doing that now. Yeah. I'd write it down to uh, note to yourself saying why you're, you're doing it. So, you know, two years from now when the market's up by, 30% you don't go back and say, uh, I was really stupid then. <laughs> yeah. So, because yeah, those I are the things you got to do. Go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, don't you think a lot of people are realizing through this market decline that, you know, maybe their risk tolerance isn't as high as they thought. And I think, you know, when we were in a, a pretty long extended bull market and then things got really good in 2019, a lot of people, you start forgetting how scary the declines can be when you're in them. You know, when you look back and you see them on paper and you see that the market's recovered since then, it's easy to look at it and be like, oh, no, I could handle that. But then when you're in the midst of it and everyone's telling you it's going to get worse and we're going to go into a global depression, it's different in real time. And I think, you know, intuitively when you say that, I think my initial reaction is, like you said, it's, well, you shouldn't sell. The market's still down from where it was. But if it's going to keep you from doing something worse or more harmful, which would be selling entirely out of your stock position if the market falls even further, then it's the lesser of two evils. That's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah, so it, it can be a sensible strategy. My point is right now, it's your get out of jail inexpensively card without doing any uh, material damage to your long-term retirement plan, your lifetime. Maybe I'll use lifetime. Long-term means different things to different people. Um, one of the things I want to make people aware of, we've been uh, writing columns in the Sunday business extra part, uh, along with providing a market update. Um, we've decided, and we've been doing it since we've only done it the last couple of weeks, but we're going to continue that one of the two columns is always going to be what we call finance 101. Very basic, very basic, um, really geared for people that have limited or no financial knowledge. And the first couple of them that, the, that my sons wrote, uh, I think Paul wrote, what is a bond, uh, son, Paul, and basically laid it out in very simplistic terms. And then Daniel just recently wrote, what is a stock? Even though the headline said, what is the stock final? <laughs> that was the, actually the document title, but should have been just what is a stock. And, uh, you know, in the next week, we're going to do what is a mutual fund. We will sit here on this 
uh, show and we'll talk about mutual funds or exchange traded funds. And there's a whole lot of people out there. And it's not because they're dumb. It's just because this is not this is not an area where they spend any time reading about or educating themselves about. So we look forward to continuing the kind of the finance 101s. I'll probably write the other column or I may I may make the kids write that one every now and then, too. It's harder to. <laughs> the kids are laughing, Fred, because for me to write anything at only 450 words, yeah. I mean, I need like 45,000 words right. to get a. My kids are better at getting that. David's the best, I think. Right. Or, or maybe they are. I shouldn't say he's the best. But there's but. no story about uh, someone asked, why did you write such a, a long book? And the answer was, I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> writing, writing a short one takes more organization and structure. It was kind of funny because I did have Paul Jr. He's not really a junior, but we call him that. Uh, he, I did have him write my column, and so he wrote, because he had written a blog a year ago about is it a good time to invest in marijuana stocks. I wasn't really crazy about the topic, the marijuana topic, you know, for for most people, but it was actually a clever article because, it, as I told him, it's really more about speculation about marijuana stocks. It's about this this idea that seems so blatantly obvious that's going to make everybody rich yeah. usually don't. So. A year ago, he wrote that blog warning people about the most popular investment fads at the time, marijuana stocks. He decided to check in, and he wrote the article. You can go back to last Sunday's News Gazette. A year ago, he wrote uh, cannabis company Tilray was trading above $53 a share. Uh, On April 21st, it was $6.76, down over 85%. Canopy growth hit a high of $52 a share April 21st. It was down to $15, down 70%. Not as bad as Tilray, as he wrote, but pretty rough. Aurora Cannabis, and this is the last one, $9 a year ago, now $0.72, cents, down 90%. So as he wrote, the point is not to say I told you so, but to remind everyone that investing in a fad or a hot industry of the day can have serious consequences. And so often we get a, you know, the, uh, the, the fad of the day. And, uh, and whether we were talking about marijuana stocks or we knew when it was a, Back in the new era, Fred, and in yeah. the late 90s, it was all you had to do was buy dot-com companies yeah. that had a lot of eyeballs. They didn't have any earnings, but they had eyeballs, whatever. Yeah, your eyes can deceive you, too. If you drive down South Neal and see the line outside the cannabis store, you might think, well, this is a, a sure thing, but it's not, not necessarily. I think it was a sure thing for that Taco Bell across the street. <laughs> yeah. I got to think that somehow they <laughs> that somehow had to benefit. Why? For all the places to have a Taco Bell right. across from a cannabis dispensary. Brilliant. Maybe a lemonade stand, <laughs> a Gatorade stand. <laughs> anyway, all right, it's 1054. Uh, I really kind of, I'm kind of out of bullets, Fred, so we're just going to have to freewheel it here. Um, how's the state? With just a few billion tucked in here or there in aid? Well, it's or is not there gonna, serious damage, permanent damage being done? It's, I mean, it's hard to know if you're in a situation where there's, already considerable damage to start off with. Obviously, it makes it worse. And we've said, again, it's not I told you so, but we've uh, talked about this many, many times that uh, you would expect that when you have uh, whatever it is, uh, 10, 11 years of recovery and growth, uh, you might be in a fairly good position to meet a downturn. But Illinois didn't make any kind of uh, significant recovery during that, that time. So they basically wasted their chance to to set things right, or at least I don't think it, setting things right is is the correct analogy, but at least uh, trying to get control of things. Uh, and now uh, we came into the situation running on empty. Now we're well below empty, so it's going to be a, a difficult time. We will get some state aid. Uh, the, the Illinois bonds are still 
even though they're uh, low rated, they're still pretty low interest rates compared to what mo- most people think the risk is. So I think we'll uh, limp through this and, and get through it, but we, we came in weakened and we'll come out probably a little bit weaker. I have a really smart physician slash kind of business side of, 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 I would say, medicine at this point. Really bright guy, and he says, Paul, uh, when you consider what a big partner or major partner the government is to healthcare, he said, healthcare is going to get really tough. He yeah. goes, because the money's not going to be there, right. and they're going to have to cut back and cut back. And he said, it's not just healthcare. He, his view was a lot of services that we're used to getting from our state and local municipalities are probably going to be severely impacted. It's severely yeah. fair. Yeah, yeah. I think the uh, here in uh, Urbana-Champaign, uh, the, the obvious uh, situation is the university. The university uh, had diminished uh, support from the state over a period of about two decades. We had about one or two slightly positive years, and that, that uh, situation may change dra- dramatically now because, again, uh, when it comes down to it, uh, universities are important, but they're not as important to the state as elementary and secondary and a bunch of other things. So I would expect uh, a lot of a lot of people who uh, have some degree of dependence on the state will, will have a problem. The university has a another big issue, and, and not, not the University of Illinois, but universities in general, and that is uh, in the unlikely event they can't open in the fall, there's going to be a huge drop-off in enrollment. Uh, people aren't going to pay the, the amount they're expected to pay to sit in their bedroom and and watch their computers. So I think that if for some reason we can't start up again, it's going to be a really uh, major kind of uh, disruption. Don't you think by then, if I think the data is there right now that says, look, young people are the least at the least risk. Maybe yeah. they got to have a system where you can come to, to campus, but you can't leave. Sort yeah. of, you just can't go home and spread it to everybody. But if you look at really the, the the at-risk population, it's not 18 to 22-year-olds. I know no. there's more. There's a wider range than that over there, and there's professors, and there's, sure. there's all kinds. But it strikes me that we're maybe we're just postponing this herd mentality thing by doing what we're doing anyway. Right. I think if I was a, an administrator, I, you'd have to have real guts to do it. But you'd say, look, it's a population that's not at risk. we got to get this thing going. Uh, it, it's looking more and more like this is a bad flu season every day that goes by. The more, the better data we have each day, it l- looking like we closed down and had the major, the biggest self-inflicted financial wound ever. Maybe not for for a valid reason. I know that's not a popular view. It's not even necessarily my view. It's just there's a lot of people that think that. Well, at this point though, it's uh, kind of uh, a fixed cost. I mean, we have to decide where to go, regardless of what we did in the past. So I think that uh, some degree of, of uh, of uh, risk-taking, I think, is appropriate at this point. Okay. Uh, I don't have the seconds on my clock here, so we're at 10.58. We usually check out at 10.59. Well, we hope you enjoyed the show today. Thanks to Dr. Fred Gertz for joining me, as usual, the only guy tough enough to actually come in the studio with with me, and son David for being on the show as well. We are going to be doing our Zoom uh, kind of video conferences uh, where, cli- where clients and maybe we're opening up to listeners. We'll let you know about that. Meanwhile, watch for our market update and the News Gazette on Sundays. Other than that, Fred, I'm waiting for this thing to go to 1059. Oh, there it goes. Okay. How unprofessional, right? Okay. Anyway, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. We'll be back the second week of May. Thanks for listening.